Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Can you say your name and what you do at MIT? I'm Ian Condry. I'm a cultural anthropologist in the Department of Global Studies and Languages, and I study Japanese popular culture, things like hip-hop and anime. So I want to talk a little bit about writing um, and the role that um, I kind of focus. We can't cover all these questions today, but I want to focus our talk around some basics on writing, but also kind of elevating that to some some other ideas. Why do you think for a professional within these fields of research or study, um, why do you think writing is important? It feels very basic to ask that question, but humor me with uh, why do you think writing is important? Why is writing important? As a scholar, writing is one of the main ways we get our ideas out to a broader audience. And I feel that teaching needs to include the writing aspect where students can go over the material, think about the structure of an argument, and look at how we make a case. Martial evidence, uh, draw the reader in, uh, give a twist that surprises people, and then try to get to a conclusion that gets people to a new place. And I believe that writing is one of the best ways to do that. It's a very immersive multimedia form, in fact. Uh, and so writing is key for getting our ideas out to an audience, and it's key professionally. It is the main thing by which uh, young scholars are evaluated. Uh, and so having strong writing is very much the basis of our, our project as, as scholars. Uh, the whole thing about publish or perish is true. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, you, I'm guessing you've seen a lot of broad variants of writing and what's come into you from students from abroad or you know, uh, students who've gone through our public education system and or not. And uh, what do you see? Wh- what do you see as the main through line that young writers start with in the field of? the publish and perish kind of writers that are they're going in that direction. I think if to I think the best way to become a better academic writer uh, and writing for a public audience of any kind is to learn how to rewrite. So when I came to MIT, one of my colleagues, uh, John Dower, 
won the National Book Award for one of his books. And it's beautifully written. And I remember having a chance to sit down with him at lunch. And I said, John, how'd you do it? You know, how your writing's so great. You know, how did you manage to pull it off? And he said, first, it's really hard. <laughs> he says, that's what you got to realize. It's really hard for me. It doesn't come naturally. And he says, the main thing is editing. Uh, and he said, that book that I wrote uh, that won the, all the awards uh, was a 700-page book when I first wrote it. And I had an editor who was just brutal about tearing parts out, reorganizing it, and forcing you to re rethink it. I cut 300 pages of the 700-page book. And he said, you know what? In the end, I didn't miss it. He said, it's a better book because of it. And so that's what I've learned from my colleagues who I respect as writer. Juno Diaz, novelist here at MIT, won the Pulitzer Prize for his book. And I, we actually came in uh, to MIT at the same time. So I've been able to hang out with him a little bit. And he says the same thing. It's about rewriting and rewriting and how hard it is. And I think it's a challenge because you have a lot of writers who say, I have to write and writing is my passion and I can't imagine a day without writing. And what they often don't say is how hard it is to uh, that editing, revising, being part of that, that pendulum swing uh, between writing something down and, and getting some momentum going where you say, okay, this is pretty good. This is pretty good. Keep going, keep going, keep going that pendulum has to swing back to the other side where you read over your stuff and you say, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible, this is terrible. Okay, wait, maybe this, this is okay. All right, let me take that part out and now I'm going to start to rebuild it around this part that's okay and let it swing back and say, okay, it's good, this is good, it's good. And so I think there's a real emotional uh, pendulum, roller coaster, whatever you want to call it, uh, of of dealing, of encouraging yourself to write and then also being your harshest editor. And I think learning that process is a lifetime, all right, lifetime thing. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about, as you're talking about that, this, uh, we, in our other interviews, this has come up a lot, this idea of cutting, um, from your first and going through drafts and cutting in, in visual design, public speaking, um, uh, what is required after you finish your first draft, or as you're writing your first draft? What is the thing you need to hold in your mind to be able to know that you're going to cut stuff, but you don't know what it is? Well, I think there's different stages to the process. I, I think you do have to be confident uh, and believe in yourself and cut yourself some slack and, and just say, hey, maybe it's okay. It sounds so obvious to me because I've already thought about it all this time, but it might not be obvious to somebody else. So I, I do think there is a stage of being easy on yourself and just trying to get the words on the page uh, that is important. I think it's important not to do the editing as you're writing. First, get down all your ideas as much as you can. They can be disorganized. They can be partial. But get it on paper. Because once I see my writing on paper, the first thing I realize is how short it comes, how, what a failure it is <laughs> compared to the depth of my emotional commitment inside of myself. It was going to be way better than this, I imagined, before I started writing. Uh, so having it on paper at least allows me to see, okay, I thought I was going to get 
much further than this. I got 15% of the way I want to get there. How can I get to 20%? What can I, what needs to be added here? And then you can start filling in and expanding out. And so I think first it's a process of just getting out as much as you can. And then ideally you let it sit. You know, if it's a day, that's, that's fine. If it's a week, that's better. If it's a month, can be even better. Uh, but give it some time and then go back to it. Uh, because often the things that I was so emotionally attached to at the moment of writing maybe didn't end up being the best writing. Uh, and later I, I say, oh, actually, this is a really interesting story. I should pull that out more and make this the centerpiece and have things revolve around that. So I think writing, having a little break, and then coming back to it for your editing phase. And and there, too, I, I like to mark things up, cross things out, write with pen and, on a piece of paper, rather than trying to rewrite it on the computer, because I get bogged down, and I don't get through enough of the material if I'm, I'm rewriting as I'm doing it. In regards to the uh, this pendulum swing, um, is that apply to all kinds of writing is that like so so I'm thinking about a lot of our grad students are going to be writing research and I mean we're not getting into skill specific training with this course but um, I know a lot of them are going to be asking themselves like well that might apply to a book that Juno Diaz is writing but does that apply to the research paper that I'm working on to for publication I do nonfiction writing uh, I write ethnographies uh, where I'm trying to report on the words and the stories and the experiences of my colleagues and informants in Japan. And so I think that writing skills of revising, editing, finding the core idea, figuring out how to express it in the clearest way applies to all forms of writing. And in academia, there's a constant battle to move away from jargon, to move away from specialized terms in order to reach a broader audience. And specialized language and jargon has its place. Uh, it's not always a bad idea. However, to the extent that we can make our ideas more clear, more communicable to broader audiences, it's always going to be better academia. And I think that applies to whether you're a, a, a romance poet uh, or whether you're a engineer in computer science. You know, we were talking earlier um, in regards to public speaking, but, you know, uh, I think using jargon can be alienating for the audience, right, if they don't know what you're talking about. And you're talking in a language or in a tone that they should know what you're talking about. But there's also techniques around, like, building understanding around new language. Mm -hmm in writing, um, do you have any techniques around that? Like if you're trying to build a new understanding around something? This is a bigger, <laughs> might be a harder question, yeah. but I was curious about it from your perspective. I think there's, a, so one of the questions is, don't we need to use specialized language in academia? And moreover, as we're trying to carve out a space for our own intellectual projects, there is an urge and really a pressure from publishers, from our advisors, from our mentors to come up with terms that no one else is using uh, uh, to mark our territory in a way. 
And, and so I think there is a place for specialized language, and there's a real value in using some of the specialized language in order to make clear specifications uh, and speak to particular histories within an academic discipline. So I'm not completely against jargon. I mean, one person's you know, insightful key word is another person's jargon, and so that's a challenge uh, for all of us. Um, I think the, the trick is telling stories that really make a new term come into being and, and make it have an impact and stay with people. Um, so I get asked about fieldwork. So I, one of the parts of anthropology is doing participant obs- observation fieldwork. And, and people say, well, how, how do you become part of a community? How do you know? So one part of my research projects uh, is about Japanese rap music. I spent a lot of time in hip-hop clubs in Tokyo. And I used to go to this club every Thursday night, midnight to 5 a.m. That's when the, the club event was. It was the same group of folks every week. I got to know them over time. And it was interesting how these little booms, these little popularities, little trends ran through the club. So I swear, one week seemed like a third of the club had bleach blonde hair. I don't know why. <laughs> None of them had normal bleach blonde hair, but they all bleach blonde their hair. For, and then it faded, moved away. And then there was a guy, he used to, a break dancer, he used to come through and he'd go, blah, and he'd point his finger and raise another hand like he was shooting a gun. He'd go, blah. And so for a couple of weeks, we were all doing that. It was really funny. Uh, and then about six months into me going to this event, a DJ friend comes up to me and he says, you know what's really popular right now? I said, no, uh, that's what's, what's really popular. He said, Ian? What's really popular right now is imitating you. <laughs> I said, what? What are you talking about? He says, yeah. He says, it's really interesting. Everybody does you, but they do you differently. It's totally fascinating. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, my God. And I, I can imagine what they're talking about. They're making fun of my Japanese. They're making fun of the fact that I hand out my business card at a nightclub. They're making fun of the fact that I take notes in a nightclub at 3 in the morning about what people are saying. I can imagine all these horrible things. I'm really self-conscious now. I'm wondering, oh, my God, what's going on? Um, and it took me a little while to get over this. Uh, but what I realized was that, in fact, this was the moment uh, where my field work had gone from me being an outsider, some kind of weird person who shows up, to now me being part of the community in an interesting way. And that it was really a field work milestone. It was horribly embarrassing, and I was really uncomfortable for a long time after that. But, but in retrospect, and having dealt with it, and, and this particular fad moved on as well. But that for me, this was a way to understand how field work involves becoming part of a community. And what it means to become part of a community is very local, it's very distinctive, but it has to do with people recognizing you as part of what they're up to. And to me, that's the real power of field work. And it was also kind of a nice story uh, that makes people say, ah, that's different. <laughs> it's not what I'm used to. I'm sure you can tell that story. Uh, you might modify it if you're, if you're using that story, say, in a public speaking event. But you know the beats of that story in, a, in the presentation of that story. So that's, that's really interesting thinking about that. Um, I wanted to ask you about, I lost my question, I was too engaged with your story, 
off track. I'm not usually the interviewer. This is usually Adam's job. Um, would you... What made you decide to become, to do what you do? Academic? Yeah. So, what was my path? You know, I asked every uh, rap musician, you know, how they got into being a rapper. And I got to know them over several years. And uh, so I'd ask them sometimes several times. And the good rappers would tell a different story each time. <laughs> so now I'm in the same boat. Like, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the semi-truthful story that I can tell? Uh, uh, I mean, the story I tell is that my interest in Japan started when I failed my Spanish competency exam uh, in college. I had studied Spanish all through high school. College had a language requirement. Took the test. Completely failed. Uh, and so I said, oh, I'll just study Japanese. Sounds weird. So... Uh, I studied Japanese and had a great teacher. I mean, that's the real story. I had a great Japanese language teacher. She turned me on to Japanese. I had a chance to go to Japan for a summer. After college, I went to Japan for a year. But what drew me to academia was that I was working for a Japanese newspaper in Washington, D.C. I was interested in journalism. Uh, uh, but I felt like the problem with journalism is if you worked on a project, a long project was two or three days long. Uh, and they couldn't really get deeply involved in whatever they were studying. And they knew a little bit about a lot. And meanwhile, part of my job was to interview academics, who were always working on just incredibly esoteric and tiny little projects. But in talking with them, I felt like they had a much better understanding of the world than my journalist colleagues, who would flit along uh, in the waves of what was popular for the moment. And so... You know, that's what drew me to academia, that to the extent that we get really focused on something that's very narrow, I believe it also gives, in some ways, a broader perspective on some of the bigger questions. And that's not true of all academia necessarily, but that's what got me into the business. I like that idea of academia being... Um... Uh, 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 the field of uh, very dedicated long-form journalism. <laughs> like, that's right. a really cool right. twist. Seven or eight years. You get yeah. seven or eight years to work, work on your hip-hop Spotlight's project. Spotlight's got nothing. Exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, what they do is great, but you're right. You're right. Even Spotlight. What do they get? Six months? Yeah. You know? Yeah. year and a half? Not, not even. Um, that's interesting. Uh, what correlations to journalism do you think academia has? Well, I do ethnography, which is telling the story of people's perspective as a way of understanding the world. And so in many ways, ethnography and journalism overlap a lot. You know, we go out, we talk to people, we try to spend time in their worlds and give their perspective a fair airing. And so I think there's a lot of overlap between what anthropologists do, what documentary filmmakers do, what uh, journalists do. Um, the, I think what makes anthropology a little special is uh, a commitment to jumping across cultures, right? Being, making sure you get into a space you really don't know, learning the language, uh, uh, being among the people for a longer period of time before we make judgments. You know, it is. I think it's long-form journalism uh, and and it's a different range of theory that we are responding to as well. Uh, so I think uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between all kinds of nonfiction writing. Yeah, I would I would imagine like uh, 
the ethical guidelines are a bit different, right? Like, so where sensationalism may be a bigger onus in journalism, it might not be, I'm guessing, in academia. I, I wouldn't know because uh, I haven't published a lot in academia, but I wonder, um, you know, I'm thinking about, like, we interviewed Yang Xiaohorn uh, two days ago, yesterday, and she's in this, like, nano tech. We understood nothing that was written on the walls of her, her, her office room, and I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, how does this connect to, you know, the basics of storytelling? And, and in a lot of ways, she did talk about how there was a lot of connections between those different things, but, um, or I'm getting somewhere with a question, sorry. I, this is me wandering through my questions. I wrote questions and now I'm going off script. Um, but uh, that ethical guideline thing is something that hasn't come up, uh, at least it has, but this is the first time I thought of it was because uh, journalistic ethics is something that journalists argue about like all the time, right? That's a big hot topic in journalism. And I'm guessing it's also part of publishing community in a big way. Um, how do you think of ethics when writing? Yeah, ethics. Um, yeah, of course. So how do I think about ethics in writing? I think we have to be careful to represent people in an honest uh, and straightforward way while also trying to tell a good story. Uh, so I think there is a real challenge to being respectful to people, but also realizing that a sensational story is worth seeking out, uh, especially if it's true or it's representative or it has something to teach us. And so I manage that a little bit by disguising the identities of people who say things that they don't want to be associated with, but in fact they probably don't mind having written somewhere as long as it's not associated with their name. Uh, so... You know, as part of my field work, I witness people doing some illegal things. Uh, I try not to share that. Um, I, I witness people putting down fellow artists. I, I anonymize that uh, if, if it's relevant to a story. But I guess one of the things that I would suggest to young scholars starting out is that a little more sensationalism probably will help, uh, in fact. And that we spend a lot of time, I think, especially in graduate school, worrying about whether we're right or whether somebody will come at us and say, what you're saying is wrong. And, and so we'd spend a lot of time explaining how we're not trying to reify culture. So an anthropologist is a terrible thing to say. Culture is actually a thing. You can't actually say that if you're an anthropologist, although it's the core of our research project is to discuss culture. You can't pretend it's actually a thing. You have to talk about it in a certain way. Some people won't use the word culture. They'll only use cultural or cultural patterns. So we get a little bit precious uh, in our theory making. Um, I think it's a mistake. I think that it's what I've learned over time is that it's more important to get people's attention uh, and to backpedal if they tell you you're wrong <laughs> than it is to be right all the time, but say things that are rather bland and unprovocative. And so I think uh, shocking people a little bit, uh, trying to uh, give people a sense of, uh, 
of things from a perspective that they don't often come at it from is very important. And it's one of the hardest things to do because so much of graduate school is training us not to make a mistake and not to be wrong. Uh, when in fact we need to think more and more about how to get people's attention and what's an idea that's right, but also that will get through the noise of everything else going on. Uh, so I'll give you an example. It's a, it's a little bit odd example, but one of the things I'm interested in is this mixture of social value and economic value. So I argue that how something like hip hop becomes a global phenomenon is not because you follow the money. It's not because it makes a lot of money for people, because it doesn't in the early stages. Same for animation. Same for comic books. Uh, you don't get in it for the money. You get in it because you love it. That's fine. You'd like to get paid for it eventually, and you deserve to. That's fine. But we need to somehow understand that there's a social value that's a little separate from an economic value. Some people often say, well, you know, those are two separate worlds. You say, no, they're not at all. In fact, the same act can have aspects of both. And so example I like to give to the undergraduates, which uh, blows their mind, is uh, we'll take this example. I'm traveling um, overseas. I'm giving a talk. Uh, have a lovely dinner. I meet this woman at a bar. She comes uh, home with me to the hotel. We have a lovely night. I think everything's great. She's gone in the morning. I look at the countertop and she's left me a hundred bucks. <laughs> and I say, here's a perfect example of a social value that's been turned into an economic value. And in so doing, you've turned it to crap. Uh, that something that I thought was real and valuable and authentic is actually nothing more than a commodity to you and a big, uh, so long sucker. Uh, so this is a story. I've heard the story told different ways. This is the way I tell it. Um, it's actually a fairly common story in the business, uh, but it's usually not personalized. But I find that personalizing it makes their jaws drop a little bit more. And, you know, my feminist colleagues say it's because I'm a man. I can get away with it. And they're probably right about that. That It might be harder for a woman to tell the story. Um, but I think that's a good way to get the idea across. It's a simple idea. Uh, but being a little bit more sensational about it. Uh, students really don't like to think about their professor having sex. They really don't. I, <laughs> to begin with, much less getting paid for it. So that's a good angle in uh, to get people's attention. They stop looking at Facebook <laughs> for a minute. and Yeah. So anyway, that's a trick of the trade that I would like to convey to my junior colleagues. Yeah, it's interesting, sensationalism. Um, and I was wondering... <laughs> I mean, I was thinking to myself, too, I, that it must, I mean, even when we talked to Yang yesterday, uh, this came up as how to connect to your audience. And she kind of gave an example of how she dis did not connect to her audience during a, during a talk. And um, I was interested in, I was, or I was just thinking about how, even in a hard science, like, um, I don't like soft science and hard science terminology, but to... Flaccid. I say it's flaccid. <laughs> <laughs> but to get the point across, uh, you know, like when you're studying chemical reactions and you're trying to write a paper about chemical reactions, it's still... Um, or I wonder what you think. Do, what do you think? Does it? Do you think sensationalism still plays a role in writing about something that is... Uh, not glamorous. I mean, the, the, or has very, or is judged socially as having very little glamour, but high content technical value. 
I think when you're trying to present your academic work, you should always think about the audience and, and how to engage them, how to surprise them, how to draw them in. It's absolutely essential, no matter what kind of academic or scholarly work you're into. I think the beauty of giving talks and why people should give a lot of talks is that you can see very quickly when it's not working, uh, that you have a very palpable sense of when you're losing the audience and when they're drifting off and when they're not paying attention. And it's hugely humiliating, and that's a great motivator. Uh, so I think that's a really important thing to do. You know, and some of it, they're just little tricks. Uh, I mean, one little trick, and I, again, I would encourage my junior colleagues to try this when they need to. The talk is flagging. People aren't listening very well. You're losing them. Take a second to go, you know what's really interesting? And then you get about five to 30 seconds just out of saying that, uh, and you'll draw them in. And it's a totally cheap trick. Uh, and even if you don't really know what you're going to say next, I'll throw that in there once in a while. I'll be like, you know what's really interesting? And you get there. Then they all pop up, and you get about 30 seconds in there to try to drag them in. And then you try to hit them with something that will surprise them and blow their minds. And so, you know, showing videos that are, you know, a little shocking, a little bit surprising, I try to find those. Um, I have a couple of those that I, I time through, like, a 40-minute talk so that I get a little break and the audience gets a little break. So I'll use three one-and-a-half-minute clips um, where the middle one is a little bit, Wrong, inappropriate. I'm curious about the. You know what I find interesting. Mm. If, if you don't hit home with that, do you tend to lose a little bit of, I guess, credit from a listener? Yeah, but you use it in a situation where you've already lost credit anyway. I mean, that's that's the point. It's a situation where you've already lost them. It, it's a last ditch effort. Let's face it. <laughs> Of course, of course, yeah, and you want to, you know, it's bad, those bad talks are bad, and I've definitely had it, um, you know, they still stick with me, I still, I remember the bad talks the best, <laughs> and the good talks, I don't know, they're okay, and I, right, you get the tricks in there, and you know, I've got a few jokes, and it's interesting, when I give talks internationally, though, that's what's hard, like, I have to cut the jokes, and I have to cut the little word play, and, because it's just, it's too cute, and people don't get it, and, um, and I'm not good enough to joke very well in Japanese. I can do a couple of them, but I, the ones I can do in English, they don't work as well in Japanese. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's a risk, but like I said, so my, my thing is that the greater risk is not pulling them in at all. Uh, and so, yeah, you use that when you need to. Uh, but it is a trick. I mean, and the other thing I, I try to teach the students uh, in writing is they often don't use rhetorical questions enough. Questions are great, um, but too much of our time is spent explaining things we already know rather than asking a question, pausing for a second to let everybody think about it. It's a great way to get people off track because they're thinking about their own thing. Then you ask them a question, and you've already got the answer because you've, you've been thinking about it for seven, you know, five or six years. Uh, they're thinking about it for 30 seconds. Uh, it's a great opportunity to get them a little flat-footed, not sure, oh, I don't know, yeah, what... What is the relationship between sensationalism and activism, for example? That's an interesting question. And they start the, the wheels churning, and then you've got an opening to pull them in. And so, you know, I, I think about the performative aspects of public speaking is very useful. 
Um, I'm, I feel I'm a pretty good public speaker, but then I go see my jazz musicians' friends perform and see what improvisation looks like, and I realize I need to get back to work because they really, <laughs> they really work the angle and surprise and juxtaposition and leaving a space and asking a question and then not answering it. And there are all these techniques that I learned from musicians that need to be incorporated into our academic speaking uh, and people can find inspiration all over the place, but to see a particularly good performance and try to analyze how people do it and where the rhythms are and what's the length of a presentation, we can learn from all sorts of places. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have anything else. I think the thing, the only, I was only going to comment on what you're saying, which, because I, I was thinking about this idea from earlier talks and Another through line is this humility factor and the ability to be flexible um, when you see something screwing up, like in your communication. And we were talking with Tony Eng earlier and talking about this this uh, problem of there's so many speakers who will know that their their talk is going wrong, so they just keep doing the same thing because they're yeah. like, I just got to get it over with. Right. But that's it, it. What you're almost positing that I think is really valuable is like actually that's kind of an opportunity to try something because there's nothing much worse that you can get. <laughs> I'm bombing out anyway. <laughs> exactly. This is not going. I'm not getting this job. <laughs> I think, but that key factor is that humility, right? Like you have to have the ability to say I'm going to be okay, no matter what. Like personally, like this is I got to just try something, and I think I think that's a really difficult thing. Yeah. He's like, you can tell when he's starting to lose some of the crowd, but he just keeps going until that last person's laughing, you know, and then no one's laughing at all. And that's when he feels like, okay, now I'm done. You know, so. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's commitment. That's commitment right there. And, you know, Pete Seeger was one of the guys that could do that. I mean, I've never seen anybody get an audience singing like Pete Seeger can. And he was him and Arlo Guthrie at a concert, and Arlo comes out there, he's like, God damn it. How does he do that? And he says, I get half of you singing for my songs, but he gets all of you singing for his songs. And, you know, and part of it is, it's, maybe it is humility is a, is a good word for it, uh, but it's, it's taking your audience seriously. Uh, and, and, and you can't, you know, you can't take, it's a little, it's a, it's a tough one because you can't let the person doing Facebook and the person sleeping in the class bother you too much. If you've got it, two or three people listening, you should be working towards those two, three people and then hope to get the rest of them in there. Um, but, and there's just some simple tricks that people should know better. I mean, don't read your PowerPoint slide. Enough with the bullet points. Use images, uh, but don't use, you know, be very careful with the words you use. Don't ever read off a slide. Um, and even I don't live by this very well, but I try to get better. Um, uh, and, yeah, and I think, you know, being more creative about how you present something is, is very important. And, unfortunately, there's so many bad examples in academia of very successful people giving terrible talks that it's, it's, people imbibe that. And it looks important or it makes you feel important if you're giving a kind of boring talk. And I disagree with that approach. What, 90% of all MOOCs right now? Um. Exactly. The talking <laughs> heads, you know, I mean, that's why I love the idea of animation, you know. If you, you might like this guy, um, Kuriyama, Kuriyama is his name. He's at Harvard. Um, but he's a sort of religion, philosophy, Japan guy. 
but he does his he'll lecture but he superimposes a, a giant talking panda head on over his head and he projects this while he's lecturing so that he gives like these deep lectures on buddhism and zen and shinto as a sort of giant panda head and it, i i i've only seen pictures of it and i really want to see it but you're like oh that's stretching it out in a way that i hadn't considered yet and uh you know it's interesting i mean i found i don't know, you hear this guy mick tausig anyway this anthropologist mick tausig was on campus the other day he's kind of famous in anthropology known for kind of giving crazy lectures and and he came his one was called mooning texas and so like oh this is going to be interesting and so he's he's it's interesting talk and kind of poetic and and he gets to the the, the part of it and he says you know i used to do this, this story where uh every like the sound artist from the dada period i can't remember 20s or 1920s or 30s and he used to dress up in this kind of rocket outfit and he called himself the i can't the blue bishop i think he called himself his cardboard and dunce cap on his head and a uh, round tube around his body. And he used to do this sort of sound poetry. And he said, I was invited to give a talk at University of Texas, and I wanted to do this. And in fact, I built a uh, cardboard rocket ship costume for my Blue Bishop look, but I couldn't get it into the uh, suitcase. He said, so uh, I want to do a little bit of sound poetry, and I, so I put a bag over my head uh, and cut a little hole for the eyes and the mouth, and I did the sound poetry, and I had the bag over my head. It's like I didn't think about it very much. So a few years later, I was up for a job at some university and didn't get it. And I asked my buddy, you know, okay, no problem. But what happened? He said, I can't talk about it. He says, come on, you know, it's no big deal. I'm not going to need the job anyway. He says, well, he said, um, the problem is what you did at University of Texas. Uh, and Mick goes, what do you mean? What, what did I do in Texas? He says, well, when you mooned the audience. He said, I never mooned the audience. He says, well, that's a story going around. You mooned the audience. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And so, he, and so the whole of his talk was actually a reflection on how, I mean, it actually made an interesting point, which he says, Karl Marx has this idea that capital becomes more capital and how, you know, you go from C to C prime and capital can sort of magically produce more capital by exploiting labor. It's old story. It's now it's accepted as mainstream economics, frankly. Uh, but he says the interesting thing is the social world is the same way. You go from S to S prime too, where there's an expansion of social energy, where social energy just makes more energy, and gossip and rumor is a perfect example of this. And I thought, oh my god, that's funny because I just been hearing the rumor that's going around about me. <laughs> And I didn't. I heard it about a year ago, and I, I just like I don't even want to think about this. It's just so ridiculous. It's impossible. And then I was just at a conference in Seattle the other day, and somebody I heard the same rumor. Uh, and of course, it's my good friends are finally telling me the rumor. But God knows how far the rumor has been traveling. So the rumor is that I was up for a job talk uh, at a university on the West Coast, and over the course of my job talk, I transformed myself into a Japanese rapper. Uh, that I changed my clothes and I started rapping and I adopted the move as a, which is really upsetting to me because I'm so not that way. I'm like, I give the, the rappers their own voice. I try to be respectful, translate their words, but I'm like, the whole point is not, it's not about me. It's about the other culture. So it's, it's a rumor that's particularly undermining to me. 
and really gets my goat because I never even got that job talk. <laughs> I wanted to get that job talk, but I was not invited for the job talk. Um, but it's kind of interesting, you know, and I don't know, you probably shouldn't put this in there because it, to me it is a little bit symbolic of how the people who do stretch out the performance uh, things and try a little bit more will get punished for it by some people <laughs> who don't like that, who are feel. I mean, that's one of the ways I read it. it. There's rumor always has that, you know, bring down the, that's the way, the, you know, the positive reading on it is that. I'm finally famous enough that rumors are spreading about me. <laughs> Dog, I've arrived. I'm successful. <laughs> it, and, the character. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, and I even think I even think it's basic. Uh, when you, I, I talk to my students about trend setting and trend following, and the issue with there's so much safety in being a trend follower. It's it's so much easier because you know, the, but the risk is is never doing anything that anybody remembers you right. for doing. Right. right. Um, when you're following a trend, but creating a trend runs a risk of being seen as insane. For, for, for a portion of time, because yeah. you probably are going to be the only person doing right. the thing in the beginning. Right. And you have to dance by yourself or whatever right. for a little while. Right. But it takes an immense amount of bravery and what others might call or see as insanity. Like, um, But, you know, you see a change that needs to be made in the world, and it's really important. If, if, that's, right. you know, if that's what you want to do, you got to risk it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what I tell the students to is stretch it out and backpedal when you need to. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Uh, but I think you're right. It's, it's good advice. And it's, you know, you think about high school education, it's not designed that way. You think about most of college education, it's not designed that way. Graduate school is supposed to be designed that way, but you, if you read the cues, you know, it's, it's much, conformity is rewarded much more than branching out and it's a fine line um you know because i think that's i remember hearing early on in my graduate career that he's one of these senior faculty says you know what we love a senior faculty is um you know new answers to old problems and i thought that that was a pretty smart rule to live by like think about what are the big old problems that are out there but design a new answer that's going to get people's attention and, and blow their minds and go for that because odds are you're going to have to try a few times uh, to figure out a way to break through. Sure. It's a good place to stop. Um, cool. Yeah, it was good. This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yerick. The Great Communicators, the Great Communicators podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking comic book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX. GradX GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more about about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information... For more information and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.